in the whole text of 1 Peter 2, ranging from, I think it was around verse 10 to chapter 3, verse 4. We're just going to read verses 18 to 25 this morning, because these verses in particular really highlight the issue that I want to address this morning. And so as we'll see in just a moment in 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25, that's the call that Peter has for servants to be subject to their masters, even to the unjust ones, even to the cruel ones. And so in this command and in the commands before and the commands after, in my mind, it really raises this, this burdensome question that are we as Christians ever allowed to just escape unjust authority, to rebel against them, to flee from them, to somehow uh, fight against unjust authority? Or is the only Christian response to being mistreated by some wrong authority is the only Christian response simply to, to bear it, as Peter seems to be commanding here in 1 Peter 2. So when we read 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25, I just hope you feel the weight of the command that Peter's given there that is incumbent upon every one of us as Christians to be willing to suffer under unjust authority. And then the other texts that I want us to read are primarily texts that are texts that help us to know how we as Christians can suffer under unjust authority. So uh, after Nicholas reads for us from First Peter, Moyer will come and read for us from Romans 8. And these verses in Romans 8 that we'll be looking at, this is where Paul reminds us that as much as we may suffer right now, that's just preparing us for something even better in the age to come. And then the very last text that we'll read, that Don will read for us, Philippians 3.8, also reminds us that there are better things in the world than there is pain and suffering. But after Moya reads for us, then Ryan will come and read for us from Psalm 10. And Psalm 10 just reminds us that God's people have always been a suffering people. That uh, it's not something that was new in the book of Acts or in the New Testament era, but rather God's people have always endured suffering. And so part of God's people enduring suffering is knowing how to cry out to God in the midst of suffering and looking to God and God alone and not looking necessarily to a change in your earthly circumstances. So those are the texts that I want to read to um, just kind of be preparing our hearts and our minds as we think about this question, can we ever rebel against or flee unjust authority? And so let's just uh, submit ourselves now to the reading of God's word and to hear what God's word has to say for us. So Nicholas, if you want to come on up. First Peter two eighteen to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do a good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thickets. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his nets. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Philippians 3, 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
Well, this is now the second sermon in, in what you could call our uh, authority series, learning how to deal with authority. Um, again, just to uh, kind of set your expectations, even though we are in First Peter, and I'm striving to do an exegetical series through First uh, Peter, these three messages are not, strictly speaking, exegetical, okay? So in the message this morning, I'm not exactly trying to just tell you what Peter is telling us in First Peter 2. 18 to 25, all right? I tried to do that two weeks ago where I just focused on what is the the message of Peter for us, but I just recognized as I was preparing that message that these commands of Peter do just bring up some huge cultural obstacles in our mind to obeying these commands, to wrapping our hearts around what God wants us to do and be in light of what he commands here. And so that's why we're taking just kind of a short departure from going on through 1 Peter so that we really can try to understand the will of God for us in these things. Um, Again, Martin Luther says that uh, if you don't speak on the one issue that is most contentious in your time, then you have not spoken the word of God fully. And so I'm trying to kind of take those words to heart, understanding that this is a contentious issue. And so I want to speak to this issue in particular instead of just going on through. So again, the question before us this morning is, is it ever okay for Christians to flee from or to rebel against unjust authority? Now, before I jump into this, I just want to point out how this question is a question that's unique to Christians, and specifically to Christians who really want to be obedient to God's word in every regard. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I hope that you're kind of scratching your head about why I would be asking this question at all right? For somebody that's not trying to submit themselves to the Word of God, who doesn't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, there is just a common sense answer to this question, right? Like, of course you flee unjust authority. Of course, if you're under some authority and they're harming you in some way, they're, they're limiting your self-fulfillment, of course you get away from them. I mean, why wouldn't you, right? And so if you're in here and you're not trying to follow Jesus, you're just kind of doing whatever seems right in your own mind, then I just affirm that that probably is the thing that makes sense to do. The only reason why we would not do that, the only reason why we would consider remaining under unjust authority is because of what God himself commands us in his word. And so that's why we're asking the question this morning, is it okay for us as followers of Jesus Christ, as ones who want to submit to God in every way, is it okay for us to escape from unjust authority, to escape from authority that might be harming us in some way unfairly? Now, a big part of answering this question is just to try and form your conscience, okay? So I don't know if Any of you may be in a situation right now where you are suffering in that way. Maybe you have an employer that's not paying you. Maybe you have a spouse that's being harmful to you in some measure. Maybe you perceive that our government is somehow afflicting you. Maybe you've been in uh, some church where the leadership of the church is somehow being oppressive towards you or something like that. I don't know if any of you are in that situation right now. Or you can also think of perhaps you know someone Who is in a situation like that? How are you going to counsel them? And so my aim in this message is to kind of form our consciences as Christians. What should we feel in our hearts is wrong for us to do as we follow Jesus? And what should we feel permission to do? What should we feel is right and good as we follow Jesus? And I I recognize that this message is not exactly the most, uh, you could say the most 
practical message per se. We, as Christians in America in general, are not a suffering people, right? We're not an afflicted people. We're not being oppressed by our government. And Lord willing, most of us are not in situations, whether in work or in home, where we are being afflicted in this way. And so let me just say a brief word about that as well. I'm I'm very eager for us especially when we come together for corporate worship to sit under God's word, to get out of the mentality that our faith is essentially a form of self-help or self-improvement, okay? Sometimes it's very easy for us, just with the cultural surrounding that we have, and even many of the churches that we see in our land today, to think that our faith in Jesus is mainly about us becoming better people, right? Or us, uh, yeah, experiencing greater self-fulfillment or living a better life or, or something like that. And then when we come to church, we expect messages that will just somehow kind of help us to, to be better people, you know, will kind of like get us through the week. And when we think about worship, we mainly think of worship as something that's meant to kind of give us a boost and give us fuel for the week. And so we, we can think about our following of Jesus. We can think about our faith itself mainly as a way to live a better life, to be more fulfilled, to be a happier person. And of course, it's not wrong at all to desire to be a happier person, to desire to live a better life. That's not a bad desire. But following Jesus is not fundamentally about being more self-fulfilled or being a better person or self-improvement in any way. When we come to follow Jesus, and we'll talk more about this a little later in the message, when we come to follow Jesus, our most basic commitment is to say that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, that is, if he has all authority, if he is the master, then that means whatever he says goes. And sometimes he might say things to us that are very hard for us, that can feel like a setback in terms of just the, the joy that we experience on a day-to-day basis. He might call us to suffer. He might call us to sacrifice. And that's good, and that's okay. And so the Christian faith is not primarily about just how can I get better? How can I get through this week? How can I know what to do in X, Y, or Z situation? The Christian life is mainly about saying, Jesus, you are Lord, and I'm going to follow you, whatever that may require. And so my hope is that even if perhaps as I talk about the theme of this message and what we're covering this morning, maybe you're thinking like, ah, I can check out today. This isn't very practical to me personally. I want to equip you for suffering. I want to equip you to help others who are suffering. Everyone in this life will suffer. All of us will experience injustice in some way. And I want you to be ready to follow Jesus in the midst of that. So even if maybe you don't feel an immediate application to yourself this week, although there are many connections to various arenas of life that I think you'll see as we go through this message. I hope you can also see that you need to be someone, if you're following Jesus, you need to be someone who is submitted to Jesus in every way. And this is an important part of knowing how to submit to Jesus as Lord. So that's where we're going this morning. That's the heart behind this message. Now, to get into this, Let's just remember from the outset that we all live according to a story, right? 
Christians live according to a story. Non-Christians live according to the story. Everyone who lives, lives according to some story. That is, they live according to some idea they have about what's good in life, what's bad in life, how they got to a place that was bad, how they're going to get to a place that's better. And they make their decisions. They live day by day on the basis of trying to live according to that story. So the, the world's basic story in our culture that the average non-Christian is going to live by, is essentially a story of liberation. And they think of this in historical terms, and they also think of it in individual terms. Though historically, as they think of history, they think that, well, for you know, many hundreds of years, people in the West lived in dark ages when they lived under religious authority and they followed a lot of rules and where the culture was stifling. And then the enlightenment happened where people started to get new ideas and they could throw off this authority. They were liberated from this authority. And so people were really unhappy when they were so oppressed under the religious system and under the cultural authorities. But now the more freedom we get, the happier we are. So they they have this historical narrative that they tell themselves. And because that's kind of this grand story, this historical narrative that they tell themselves, they also tell themselves that in their day-to-day lives. They think that if they're miserable or if they're unhappy in some way, well, it must be because they they haven't fully expressed themselves. They aren't fully liberated. Somebody is kind of holding them down. And so if they really want to be happy, what they have to do is they have to throw off whatever this outside authority is, throw off whatever this inhibition may be so that they can fully express themselves, truly express their innermost being. And they think that when they do that, that's when they will be happiest. That's when they'll be most fulfilled. Indeed, it's also, it's almost axiomatic that that's their definition of happiness is self-expression, is doing whatever I want to do. And so this idea of freedom is a very modern idea. And again, is the story that the world lives by. And so, again, if that's the story that you're living by, or maybe you're not even living by that story, maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but that story has really kind of influenced your your mind and your ideas, then again, this whole question of is it okay to get out from unjust authority is just going to seem absurd to you, right? I mean, anytime authority is somehow stifling you or somehow shaping you in a way that you don't want to be shaped, well, by definition, you should throw off that authority because you're not going to be happy under an authority like that. You're only going to be happy when you are you. And if anybody is hindering that, then you just better get them out of your life. Otherwise, you're always going to be dealing with these feelings of shame and guilt. And so, For those in the world, those who are not living according to the Christian story, this idea of liberation has very strong resonance. And again, we as Christians can start to think in this way too. But it's important to see that this story is not the Christian story, right? In fact, in some ways, this story is almost the Christian story put on its head. The the Christian story says that we will be happiest when we are in submission to God fully. The Christian story says that in the very beginning, when God created everything and everything was perfectly under the rule of God, that's when all of creation was most flourishing. That's when human beings were most flourishing. And it's precisely when we rebelled against God's authority that death came into the world, ruin came into the world, terrible things came into the world. And so what do we now need to be happy? Well, we need to submit again to God. 
But the problem is that we couldn't do that in our own strength, right? It wasn't mainly a matter of our willpower that was the reason why we weren't submitting to God. No, it was a matter of spiritual captivity, of spiritual blindness. We were slaves to sin, and so we needed a liberator. We needed someone from outside to come and rescue us. And so that's what Jesus has done. He has come into the world. He has died to sin. He has conquered death. So that now, as we trust in him, our own hearts are liberated from the power of sin and set free to submit to God. And so now, we believe that as we submit to God, God is preparing us right now for a future day, where as we read in Romans 8, where the glory of that future day far outstrips all the suffering that the world has ever experienced. I mean, just how hard is that to fathom? I mean, just look at the news for one news cycle, for one day, and look at all the suffering in the world. And again, for those who are only living according to the world, they can just be an enormous cause of despair, thinking the only purpose in their life is somehow to to lessen this suffering that the world is experiencing today. And of course, we do want to lessen that suffering. But for us, the hope comes not in the idea that this world itself will somehow cease suffering or will somehow get so far advanced or so far better than it is right now that suffering will be dramatically reduced. Our hope is in an age to come, that Jesus one day will return. He will recreate all things. And when he does, those who love him will be with him forever and ever. And the joy that they experience with him will be much, much more than anything that we can presently ask or imagine. It'll be so wonderful, so wonderful, that as Paul could say in Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the joy we will have then. And just think, this is the Apostle Paul saying this. This is someone who is whipped almost to the point of death. This is someone who is shipwrecked multiple times. This is someone who is imprisoned. He knew suffering, right? He wasn't someone that lived a cushy life and said, oh, the sufferings of this present time aren't worth being compared to the age to come. No, he suffered enormously. And even in his enormous suffering, he was able to say that those sufferings could not compare to the age to come. And so if we are living according to that story, if we're living according to the story that we get to submit to God, and when we get to submit to God, we're prepared for this coming age of glory, then it can start to make sense, right? How we could be under some kind of authority that is abusive, that is unjust, and we could say, you know what? I can hang on. You know what? I can stay here. You know what? I can suffer. Because however much I may suffer right now, there's something better that's coming. And so the main point that I'm trying to make here is I'm just kind of trying to lay the groundwork for this decision that Christians must make when they're under authority. And and when this authority is abusing them in some way, treating them unjustly in some way, how is it that we don't just immediately say, yeah, get out. That's the only solution. And the only way we do that is we can look at our suffering in this present time and we can say, Lord, I know you are good. I know you are sovereign over this. I know you see my suffering right now. And you are preparing me for something even better in the age that is coming. Now, 
Peter's letter itself is written to Christians in large part to kind of steal them for this kind of suffering, to prepare them for this kind of suffering. And so one thing we see in Peter is over and over again, he is reminding them of the glory that awaits them. Again, even in the text that we read this morning in 1 Peter 2.19, we see these words. Peter says, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows by suffering unjustly. So when he says this is a gracious thing, he's saying, God is seeing your suffering. He's preparing a blessing for you in the midst of your suffering. If you go down to 1 Peter 3, verse 14, he reiterates the same message. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled. So we can suffer right now and we can embrace suffering right now because we know we will be blessed. Or look down to 1 Peter 4, verses 13 and 14. It says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So do you see how we as Christians can embrace this fact that maybe we don't have our best life right now? That yeah, maybe we're passing up on some good thing that we could have if we would reach out and grab it, but we're not reaching out and grabbing every good thing we could have because we want a greater blessing? Because if God has called us to suffer in some way, then we want to embrace that suffering knowing that something better is coming in the future? There's this phrase that the Lord kept bringing to my mind this week that I think needs to be a regular discipline for us as Christians, especially as Christians that live in a prosperous country like America. And that phrase is just, look behind the veil. Look behind the veil. Again, we are so prone, especially when we have such abundance, such prosperity, to, to look to the good things that we have and to think that that's really what life is all about. To, to think that life is good when we have this, these good material things. And again, think life is bad when we don't have these material things. But Scripture shows us over and over that this whole created order, this whole physical creation that we see is really a veil. It's like a smokescreen for bigger and greater realities that are going on behind the veil, behind the smokescreen. Scripture teaches us that God is spirit, right? That's John 4, 24, God is spirit. That means that God himself, the greatest reality in all of existence, the greatest being that you could possibly know is someone that you cannot see with your physical eyes, someone that you cannot touch with your physical hands. He is a spirit, a spiritual reality. And so that means that if, if your life is mostly focused upon material benefits, material goods, material blessings, you will miss out on the greatest reality, the greatest good that you could possibly know, the good of God himself. I mean, there, there's a whole, the, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it's called an, an apocalypse, an unveiling, because it's showing us that everything that happens on this earth right now is like nothing compared to these enormous spiritual realities that are taking place even now. Beloved, if, if you were to be the richest person on earth right now, if you were to have billions of dollars, be able to have everything you want, 
you cannot experience one one millionth of the joy that the seraphim and the angels in heaven enjoy right now as they are singing to the Lord in his presence right now. That reality is so much greater, so much more beautiful than any physical reality we could experience, that we have to train ourselves day in and day out, especially when we feel our hearts being satisfied by earthly things. We have to train ourselves, look behind the veil. Don't just look at what I have today. Don't look at what I'm enjoying today. Look at ultimate realities, spiritual realities. Live for those. Those are the ones that will never fade. So again, that's what Peter is encouraging the recipients of this letter to do. He's saying, yeah, you may suffer right now. You may be a servant who is under an unjust master right now, but you can endure. And you know why you can endure? Because there is something so much better coming that you could even laugh in the face of the suffering that you experience right now. And so the most basic Christian posture as we experience any kind of earthly suffering is just to say, so what? You know? Like... I don't have all the things that I want to have, so what? Someone speaks in an ugly way to me, disrespects me, so what? Someone harms me, so what? I mean, I have such a greater inheritance, such a greater treasure than the harms that could befall me in this world. That we don't take account of suffering the way the world world takes account of suffering. And so the mere fact of suffering must not ever be the reason why we flee unjust authority. And so if you ever find yourself under unjust authority, or again, if you're counseling someone else who's under unjust authority, and their their main motivation simply seems to be, you know what, life is hard, I don't want life to be hard, so I'm going to flee, or I'm going to rebel. Well, the, the simple Christian answer to that is, we're supposed to embrace a hard life. So don't get out from suffering just because you don't want life to be hard. Because you know what? Even if you escaped this kind of suffering where life is hard, God calls you to a hard life somewhere else. And so just sheer physical difficulty must never be the reason why we flee from or why we rebel against unjust persecution or unjust suffering. So that's the, that's the framework that we have to remember to live in as Christians, is this reality of the age to come and the light momentary afflictions that we experience right now. Okay, but now that being said, again, the question is, are we as Christians allowed to rebel against unjust authority? Well, from one angle, the answer to that question is a resounding yes. A resounding yes. In fact, We as Christians have a uniquely strong answer to this question, a uniquely strong reason to rebel against unjust authority. And that is because we believe that Jesus is Lord. And every other authority on earth is ultimately accountable to him, subject to him. And so that means if we are under some authority, no matter how powerful that authority may be, whether it be the state itself, whether it be an employer who holds our paycheck, whether it be a spouse that physically intimidates us, however powerful that authority may seem in our eyes, we know that there is a higher and a greater authority still. And if any authority ever tells you to do something disobedient to God, breaking the law of God, the answer for the Christian is always no. We will not disobey God. 
And so that is always a just answer to rebelling against or fleeing from unjust authority. Now, again, I say this is uniquely Christian. One of the most powerful political statements that we as Christians make, the most important political statement that we make, is the statement that Jesus is Lord. And this statement is a radical intervention in human history. I mean, just think of ancient cultures. In in almost all ancient cultures, the state is married to religion, right? The king himself or the queen, whoever is the leader of the state, has some priestly role, has some authoritative role. In fact, in many ancient civilizations, the king or the leader was even thought to be God, right? That happened in Rome, that happened in Egypt, that happened in many cultures. And why did they do that? Why did so many states marry the state to religion? Well, because the state wanted authority over those to whom they had charge. And if there was a God above the king, if there was some authority above the king, then that was some limit on their authority, right? That means that there was somebody else that their people could obey besides them. And so what do they do? Well, they marry the government to the religion. They say the king is God, the king is divine, somehow related to God. And then that means that whatever the king says, whatever the queen says, whatever the leader says, you must obey because that is God speaking. And so in a very fundamental way, those who do not believe in a sovereign God, a creator God who is high above the earth, those who do not believe in that kind of God do not have a reason to rebel against authority because the greatest authority they know is this earthly authority that's staring them in the face demanding that they do something. But we as Christians do have a higher authority. The apostles themselves, when they were charged not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, they say in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. And so one case where you always know that you can rebel against unjust authority, you can flee from unjust authority, is whenever you're trying to serve God rather than man. Probably the most expiring example of this in Scripture is Daniel and his three friends, right? We all know the story of how they were commanded not to pray, but Daniel kept on praying. How they were commanded to bow to the great statue that was set up, but they wouldn't bow, and so they were thrown into the fire, right? They defied authority. They defied authority because they were subject to God ultimately and not man. This is the the radical teaching that Peter himself gives in 1 Peter 2, verse 16, when he says, live as people who are free. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You see, we as Christians, even when we are subject to some employer, even when we are subject to some spouse, even if we're subject to some church, that subjection is always in subjection to God above all. We are not fundamentally accountable to any human being. We are not fundamentally accountable to any man. We are fundamentally accountable to God. Therefore, any allegiance that we give to any government, any other organization, any allegiance we give is always as free people, as people who must give an account to God. But because we give an account to God, we will, in obedience to God, sometimes set ourselves under some other authority. 
So whenever authority might be calling you to disobey in some way, the answer for the Christian must always be no. We will obey God rather than man. But there's still many cases that remain, like the case that Peter is addressing most clearly here in 1 Peter 2, 18-25. The case where a master is not compelling you to disobey God. The master is just being cruel. The master is just inflicting punishment on you. What's the case then? Are we as Christians then allowed to flee from unjust authority? Well, the basic claim that I want to advance, and I'll give a little more guidance in fleshing out this claim, but the most basic claim I want to advance is that this is a matter of Christian liberty. It is a matter of Christian liberty. Again, I'll I'll try to give some tips for how we can make these decisions, but I want to flesh out first this concept of what does it mean for something to be a matter of Christian liberty? A matter of Christian liberty ultimately means that it's something that Christians can disagree on, but still have fellowship in. It's something that Christians can disagree on, but still have fellowship in. This concept, I think, is probably most clearly expressed in Romans chapter 14. So let me just read a few verses from you. This is Romans 14, verses 2 to 10. The Apostle Paul writes, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So do you understand Paul's words there? He's saying that in cases like eating or recognizing certain days, each one must give an account to God. And so do as is right in your own mind. Be fully convinced in your own mind. And I think this is very much the case when it comes to the matter of fleeing or escaping from some kind of unjust persecution. Maybe one person is convicted, convinced that I must escape, I must flee, or I must rebel. Another person says, no, I must remain, I must stay. Well, let the one who stays do so in subjection to God. Let the one who flees do so in subjection to God. There is no evil in staying. There is no evil in leaving. So this is a matter of Christian liberty. And the important idea behind Christian liberty, the reason why the whole concept of Christian liberty is so important, Paul goes on to say, just after Romans chapter 14, this is the beginning of Romans chapter 15, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We care about the unity of the church. 
We care about preserving our brotherhood and sisterhood in Jesus Christ. And if we make the issue of remaining under unjust persecution or fleeing from unjust persecution, if we make it an issue of obedience or disobedience to God, then we will ultimately be condemning brothers or sisters for whom Christ died. And so we must be careful not to cast judgment on those who are suffering in some way and maybe they choose to flee. Or those who are suffering in some way and they choose to stay. We should honor the one who flees. We should honor the one who stays for the sake of the unity of the church so that we with one voice can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Romans 15. Now, John Bunyan, I think, stated this very well with regard to Christians experiencing persecution in particular. But again, I think this applies to any Christian who's under authority and wondering what to do. John Bunyan himself, uh, you may have heard of him. He's the author of Pilgrim's Progress, most famously. He himself knows a little bit about Christians' experience in persecution. He himself was imprisoned for more than 15 years, and he had to make a decision many times. Do I flee from the persecution that's coming upon me now for my own sake and for the sake of my family? He even had a little daughter who is handicapped, and he said that his heart was broken daily for his daughter, whom he was away from because he was in prison. And so he had this question often, do I flee for the sake of myself and my family or do I stay and become in prison? And here is what Bunyan says in his advice to sufferers. He says, first, having regard to what was said afore about a call to suffer, thou mayest do in this even as it is in thy heart. You can do as it is in your heart. Sorry, I probably should have updated the English in this for the sake of reading it. If it is in your heart to fly, fly. If it be in your heart to stand, stand anything but a denial of the truth. He that flies has warrant to do so. He that stands has warrant to do so. Yea, the same man may both fly and stand as the call and working of God with his heart may be. Moses fled, Exodus 2. Moses stood, Hebrews 11. David fled, 1 Samuel 19. David stood, 1 Samuel 24. Jeremiah fled, Jeremiah 37, Jeremiah stood, Jeremiah 38, Christ withdrew himself, Luke 9, Christ stood, John 18, Paul fled, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul stood, Acts 20. There are therefore few rules in this case. The man himself is best able to judge concerning his present strength and what weight this or that argument has upon his heart to stand or fly. I should be loath to impose upon any man in these things. So do you hear what Bunyan is advising us there from God's word? He's saying that we each understand that we must give an account to God. We each must wrestle with the question, when we are suffering, what will we do? What is it that God wants us to do? And whatever we choose, we should not judge one another. We should not condemn one another. Rather, we should help one another and strengthen one another. And so what counsels can be given in this question? What counsels can be given about when we find ourselves suffering in this way? Again, maybe it's state persecution, maybe it's employer, maybe it's spouse, it's some authority that God has put in our life. What sort of factors should come into our judgment? Let me just offer five questions that may help you or help someone else discern what they ought to do. 
The first question is, would you be serving others by fleeing or by rebelling? Would you be serving others by fleeing or rebelling? If you're only looking out for yourself, that's probably not a very strong argument to flee. But if you would be helping someone else, then that is a good argument. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine says that the greatest commitment for the Christian is to love our neighbor as ourself, right? And so if we care about our neighbor and we see them suffering and we think we can help them by rocking some authority onto its heels or by fleeing in some way, then we should help others. We should serve them. So that's one reason why you might rebel or why you might flee. Another question is, do you have an easy, natural way to transition out of your abusive situation, out of your suffering? The Apostle Paul gives advice to slaves in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, were you a bondservant, a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who is free is called a bondservant of Christ. And so Paul is saying there, if you can gain your freedom from an unjust master, then do it. There's no problem with it. And so if your boss is doing something wrong to you and you have an opportunity to, to take a new job, well, you don't need to overthink it necessarily. If you have an opportunity to be free, be free. It's okay. So if you have a natural way to transition out of your abusive situation. If you are considering fleeing, if you're considering moving or rebelling, ask yourself, is fear my primary motivation? Is fear my primary motivation? Am I just scared what's going to happen to me? Or if you're thinking about rebelling, giving that authority some comeuppance, then is pride your primary motivation? You just want to show this authority who's the boss and who's right. If fear is your primary motivation to flee, or if pride is your primary motivation for rebel, then you should not flee and you should not rebel. Scripture is replete with commands to fear God rather than man. Scripture is replete with reassurances that God is near to the oppressed, like we read in Psalm 10 just a little earlier. And so don't flee just out of fear. Don't rebel just out of pride. Rather, entrust yourself to God. Another question is, is it your thought that if in fleeing, you will have an easy life and could enjoy yourself? Or in rebelling, that you will have an easy life and could enjoy yourself? Again, if your thought is, I want to get out from under this suffering so that I can go and have an easy life, And again, you do not have the mind of Christ. Christ says that all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. So that means even if you can escape one kind of suffering, you better go to the new place with the mentality that you're going to suffer in a new way. And so don't do it just because you think that you're going to have an easier life, that you're not going to have to suffer wherever it is that you go. And then lastly, and This is the most complicated one, but also I think a very important one. Does the abuse of authority cause you yourself to disbelieve God's truth? Does the abuse of authority cause you yourself to disbelieve God's truth? Now, what I'm thinking of here is that we all know that sometimes we can be under an authority that is so oppressive, that seems to so totalize our obedience, that can have a psychological effect upon us. 
We can start to believe lies that the authority is saying. And if the authority is causing us to believe lies, to believe things that are not true from God's word, then I think that itself is a good reason to rebel. I think this is largely the case in what justified, for example, the civil rights movement in American history. Now, could African African Americans have submitted to Jim Crow laws and things like that? Yeah, they could have. But the problem with that would have been that they are speaking lies about their humanity, lies about how they bear the full image of God. And so these little black children, as they grow up and as they obey these laws, they are ingesting these false ideas that they are somehow less than white people. They are somehow less human. And so in this case, submission to authority was causing them to doubt God's goodness, was causing them to doubt the truth of God's word, that all human beings are created in the image of God. And so if, if an authority is having that kind of psychological impact on you, causing you to believe things that are simply not true, then it might be the case that you need to flee or you need to rebel. Or consider a wife who's suffering the abuse of some husband, and this husband just keeps telling her that you're worthless, that nobody cares about you. And this wife starts to believe these things. Maybe I am worthless. Maybe nobody does care about me. Well, then this wife is starting to internalize falsehoods. Because God does care about her. Because she is valued and created in the image of God. And so if the psychological oppression itself ever becomes so weighty, so deep, that we struggle to believe God's truth and believe God's word, then that itself may be a good reason to flee out from under some kind of unjust authority. And so those are just five questions, five considerations for you to have If you're counseling someone else, or if you yourself are wrestling with this question of, okay, someone is oppressing me, someone's causing me to suffer, what am I to do? Ask those questions, but again, have liberty in your own conscience, liberty in your soul, that you are allowed to flee, you are allowed to stay. Only do so in the Lord. I'd like to conclude with just a word for all of us, to how we can help those who are suffering, right? Because I think for most of us in this room, we ourselves are not the ones who are being persecuted right now. We ourselves are not the one who are suffering abuse right now. Although again, if you are, we want to help you. We want to support you in whatever way we can. But lastly, a word to those who are helping those who are suffering, who are persecuted. Two points that I want to make. The first point is when we are helping those who are suffering, when we are helping Christians who are suffering under unjust authority, we do need to help them in two ways. One way we can help them is to offer them help to flee, offer them help to escape. But if that's the only way we offer help, then we are not being faithful to 1 Peter. We are not being faithful to the counsel of God because we should also offer them help to encourage them to endure unjust suffering. Again, we leave the decision up to them because it is a matter of Christian liberty. We say, what would you like to do? Do you think it's right for yourself to flee? Do you think it's right for yourself to stay? But ultimately, whatever their decision is, we support them in that decision. If they choose to stay, we honor them. We pray for them. We encourage them that whatever suffering they are enduring, they have a better reward waiting for them in the age to come. And if they choose to flee, then we help them flee. 
Again, we do not impose our own decision upon someone else and then insist that they receive our help in the way that we want to give it. No, we are there to strengthen them, to help them, to support them. And whatever they choose, that we will help them with and we will strengthen them with. So think especially of the persecuted church. You know, we try to pray every week here for the persecuted church. Is it right for us to help persecuted Christians flee persecution, come to America or go to Europe or something like that? Yes, that's a fine thing to do. But let's not have that be the only way that we help the persecuted church. Let's also honor them when they choose to stay. Say, yes, you can endure. Yes, you can bear up under this affliction. And so we help them in both ways. And then the second point, and again, this is the last point I will make, is just let us be gracious with one another. Let us be gracious with one another. Again, the Lord has given us all varying levels of what kind of suffering we are able to endure. And maybe I can endure more suffering than you. Maybe I can endure less suffering than you. But whatever suffering I can endure, whatever suffering you can endure, let's not use our own experience of suffering to somehow judge one another what you should be able to do or when you should be condemned. No, let's love one another. Let's keep our eyes fixed on that day that is coming when Christ Jesus himself will return and will make all things new. And then whatever suffering we have experienced, we will receive a great reward. Again, a reward so great that all the suffering will seem light and momentary in comparison to that great day. So when we come together as a church, let's continue to pull back that veil. Let's continue to encourage one another. When we experience suffering and trials of various kinds, to say, brother, sister, hold on, persevere, endure. There are greater things than material blessing. There are more things to enjoy in life and TV, and wealth, and good food. So pursue Jesus. Go hard after him, and you will know joy untold, whether you suffer now or whether you don't. And so with that, let's bring our prayers to God, our prayers of intercession, our prayers of confession, as we seek his help in all of our troubles. Heavenly Father, I thank you that even though you do call us to endure hardship and suffering, Lord, even though you yourself put suffering in our lives, Lord, that you don't leave us alone. And God, I pray for anyone here this morning who is enduring some kind of hardship that they don't deserve, where they are innocent of wrongdoing, and yet they are being accused or yet they are being afflicted. I pray, Lord, that you will strengthen them to entrust themselves to you not to look mainly to earthly justice, not to look mainly to earthly blessing, but Lord, would you help them to see the vast and the beautiful spiritual realities that they can live for, that they can enjoy, even with this light and momentary affliction. And so strengthen those in our congregation who are suffering, God. And I pray that you would hear our prayers now as your people.